guys. Welcome to the Anesthesia Nerds podcast, where we talk about everything involving veterinary anesthesia and pain management. This week's guest is pretty fantastic, uh, especially if you've had the pleasure of having him as one of your instructors. Um, This week, we have Dr. Ben Brainerd, who is a graduate of Dartmouth. He earned his veterinary medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania. He is not only involved with the International Veterinary Academy of Pain Management, but he's also an associate editor for the Journal of Veterinary Emergency and Critical Care. And he's also a professor of small animal critical care at the University of Georgia. So welcome to the Anesthesia Nerds podcast, Dr. Ben Brainerd. Thank you so much. It is great to be here. I am so excited to talk to you, Dr. Brainerd, not only about the case that we're going to do today, but also just you're so involved in emergency critical care. And what I love is not just the critical care aspect, but the pain management aspect. What kind of things have you been working on lately or what's some cool things you can tell us about critical care and pain management together? Uh, that's Yes, it's sort of, uh, you know, it's interesting. It's, it's very much because I, I spend most of my time now, the only anesthesia I do is mostly um, for the zoo. And um, so I work most of my time in the intensive care unit and, and we see a lot of post-operative patients. And, you know, I think a lot of the current pain scoring systems are a little bit tricky to use, especially in a patient who's debilitated one way or another and, and with critical illness. And so one of the things we've been thinking about is, is you know, trying to establish or trying to figure out the best way to look at these animals and, and you know, make sure that at, their analgesia is adequate. And then, you know, also with the critically ill patients to make sure that our analgesia isn't pushing them over the edge into having other uh, unwanted complications. And so most of my job, I think, is fighting ileus in the post-operative mm-hmm. patient. But yeah, so that's that's kind of where, where we're... Uh, what we're doing when we're thinking about that, you know, from an ICU standpoint, but it, you know, it's obviously, it, I won't say it's overlooked, but I think best practices remain to be defined. Yeah, it's really interesting as we, you know, you usually typically think about critical care and, you know, a really critical patient comes in a, a trauma or hit by car or something being the classic example. And I have seen at least in my years in the veterinary medicine industry, uh, we have shifted from not only, you know, getting that catheter, getting the airway, that kind of thing, but within the first couple of seconds, usually having a, a, confer- a conversation with the clinician of like, okay, you know, what do you think the pain level is and what do we want to use for pain control? And that conversation is happening uh, much sooner than it did 12, 15 years ago when I first started in vet med. So that's really promising. Yeah. And I think, you know, also the, the availability of shorter acting drugs, you know, it's it's a much easier conversation if you say, "I'm good." Well, let's give a small bolus of fentanyl and see if this improves the overall aspect. You know, it's going to be gone in 10 to 15 minutes, and so if it really sets the patient back, um, you know, you can you can regroup and and come up with a different plan. So, you know, I think we, especially in the ER, tend to reach for some of those shorter acting and reversible drugs, and and I think people are much more open to understanding that. We can try something, see how it works, and then sort of build iterations on top of that. Yeah. So just before we get into our case, just because now that you've said that, it kind of makes me think, you know, if most of the people listening, let's say that they they see some emergencies, but maybe they're not an emergency clinic, so they're not stocked with a very uh, wide range of drugs. And if they don't have a short-acting opioid like fentanyl, remifentanyl, something like that at their disposal, What's their next best choice? Do they should they feel okay giving a dose of something like hydro or even methadone? 
Yeah, I think so. I, I'm I'm down on methadone this month because we've had a couple where it didn't really seem to cut the pain and the you know they they didn't seem to provide them as as much analgesia as I was hoping it would. Although it's an intriguing drug in and of itself, but you can certainly give a lower dose and, you know, you can always give more. And then the other nice thing, obviously, about the opioids is that uh, you have a reversal agent. The other thing I'll say is once we have a better handle on on where the patient sits, um, you know, multimodal analgesia involving things like ketamine, um, you know, is, is actually a relatively safe drug in the grand context of, of drugs. Uh, probably the only one, I, the only drug I'm a little bit hesitant to give right off the bat are some of the alpha-2s. Uh, just because we don't have a full sort of um, view of the animal's cardiovascular status. I, you know, you can always give more of a drug. You don't need to give a full dose of hydro, especially if you're worried about it. But the beauty is, uh, you know, hydro is a great drug. Morphine's a great drug for, you know, um, while we're talking about it. And, and the reverse- Yeah, let's talk about morphine because I feel like it kind of went out of vogue. Uh, definitely when I first started, I used a lot of morphine in practice. Now we don't use it as much. So why is that? Does is it still a good drug to use? Still a good option? Oh, it's it's. I mean, morphine's a great drug. It's just it became very expensive, and I think you know, unfortunately, in veterinary medicine, we're kind of at the whim of uh, the human market. And I think morphine, for one reason or another, went out of vogue and became much more expensive during my residency. Morphine was was dirt cheap, and meth, something like methadone was actually quite expensive to the point where it was probably you know, prohibitively expensive uh, to use it even. So, and morphine is great. I think I like morphine also as a constant rate infusion as well. I mean, to me, it's a it's a really nice drug from an analgesic standpoint. I would heartily support its return and I actually prefer it to hydromorphone. I think it's a little bit more flexible, especially in the context of CRI. Oh, very interesting. Okay. I mean, I still like morphine. Uh, I Again, that's kind of what I grew up on as far as um, when I started doing a lot of anesthesia and learning. We did a lot of morphine dextomator, morphine midazolam, um, and a lot of CRIs. So I'm pretty comfortable with morphine. That was the time that we also had uh, Penethol. And I used a lot of Penethol. And I actually didn't. I actually don't have the disdain for Penethol that some people have. So. <laughs> Penethol is also a good, I mean, especially, you know, I do in, in critical care, we do a lot of long-term ventilation. So we have animals who are anesthetized for days and uh, yeah, you know, all of the barbiturates were actually pretty useful in that. And and unfortunately, you know, thiopental is gone. Penobarbital is difficult to yes. deal with. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, and unfortunately, like those have also kind of gone by the wayside, but they were great for, for really long-term sedation and anesthesia for, for those cases. Yeah, they were. All right, so many drugs to talk about. And interestingly enough, today's case that we're going to talk about, not necessarily about the drugs, but a little bit kind of like how we deliver the drugs during uh, induction, maintenance, et cetera, of anesthesia. So are you okay to do a case with me? Yeah, let's do it. Great. All right, Dr. Brainerd, our case for today is Macy. She is a 30-kig, really crazy Silver Labrador. Hopefully, <laughs> uh, some of some text. I'm sure that's in there, breed standard. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so she is a little bit crazy. Um, I'm sure some of the techs out there listening right now are just thinking about having to do a silver Labrador uh, nail trim, uh, and they're shuddering a little bit. So she was pre-medded at home with some trazodone. 
Uh, when she came in, we at the clinic, we're going to pre-med her with Hydra and ACE. She is here to have an ovariohysterectomy. And the main thing that I really want to talk to you about today is during her case, what should we be doing with our oxygen flow? Does it matter if we have it at two liters per minute the entire time? Is there an advantage over using a lower flow? What if I want to make changes? Um, so really what we're going to be talking about is not necessarily the analgesic or anesthetic drugs, but the carrier oxygen and the flow of oxygen through our system and why it might matter. I'd love to give your take on bringing this patient from induction to maintenance to recovery and some things we need to consider along the way. So for this patient, let's say we are utilizing isoflurane and we wanna induce with propofol and then we get our patient intubated. During that initial time that we're clipping and we're scrubbing, maybe performing a local line block, where should we be at with our percent isoflurane and our flow of oxygen? Yeah, these are great questions and they, they harken back and I, I won't dwell too much on the physiology, but it, it's something that kind of helps me think about it. But you know, if you think about the dog's body vis-a-vis the isoflurane, you have a dog who has no isoflurane on board at all. And so your first goal with regards, if you're hoping to use only isoflurane as your maintenance agent um, for anesthesia is you need to get to a point, and the most important aspect is having enough isoflurane in the brain to keep the animal asleep. And I think we all know that, uh, you know, there, there is rapid redistribution of drugs um, depending on the type of drug, the redistribution can happen at different speeds. But by and large, if you give an injection, let's let's just make a parallel for a second to um, an IV injection. Actually, propofol is a great drug, right? So when we are inducing anesthesia, we give a large, we give a, a dose of propofol. That propofol rapidly goes to the brain, rapidly causes unconsciousness. And then where does the propofol go? As time continues, that propofol is going to be redistributed to other parts of the body. I think there's one misconception that says that the propofol is being uh, you know, metabolized. That's not necessarily the case. The, the reason that an animal will wake up after receiving a bolus of propofol is that all of a sudden the amount of propofol in your brain decreases below the level that you need to maintain unconsciousness. And so it's the same exact thing with inhalant anesthetics. And the tricky thing is you need to rapidly go from a patient who has zero isoflurane in their brain, and you need to increase rapidly the amount of isoflurane in their brain, essentially before the propofol goes away. Obviously, the, you know, the addition of other analgesic agents helps to delay that you know, sort of uh, arousal. But at the same time, Part of the importance of your initial delivery of isoflurane is to rapidly achieve blood levels or brain levels, if you will, of the drug. The other thing you need to, to remember is that our alveoli, so in addition to the fact that we have no isoflurane in the patient or in the patient's brain, we also have alveoli that are filled with nitrogen, right? The animal's been breathing room air or maybe it's been pre-oxygenated, so it's got a mix of air and, and nitrogen in its alveoli. We also need to, if we're using 100% oxygen, denitrogenate or clear out the alveoli and replace them with oxygen with our carrier gas, or our carrier gas, which is oxygen, with isoflurane. And so this is the basis for starting off at a relatively high fresh gas flow rate. Um, and generally, you have your isoflurane vaporizer, if you're using a vaporizer outside of the circuit, 
uh, which I think most people are, um, you need to deliver essentially your target. You know, if you're targeting one or 1.3 or 1.5 Mac, whatever your target is, generally we'll sort of target a little bit above that because we know that we're going to deliver some of the isoflurane to the body. But then we have, in addition to the brain, obviously we have our other organs, we have muscle, we have fat, and eventually all of that isoflurane that you're delivering is going to be distributed around the body. So if we have this 30 keg silver Labrador, and let's say we do want to go a little bit above Mac, and I set my vaporizer at two, and then I set my oxygen flow at two liters per minute as well. Is that what we're talking about in a higher flow? Or are we talking about sometimes I've seen in some practices, uh, people will really, you know, put the flow up to like four liters per minute? You know, I think probably at the end of the day, the you're you're moving enough oxygen per minute that the difference between two and four is probably minimal. I think probably if you were delivering it at a slightly faster rate, you might, you're, you know, because you're delivering gas, but you're, you're also delivering inhalant, right? And so you're sort of giving a, a higher dose of that inhalant initially, uh, even though it's going to redistribute to other parts of the body. So I'm not sure that it makes a tremendous difference when you're sort of doing this, uh, you know, what one might call high flow uh, denitrogenation part. And, and again, you know, to me, um, when I think about oxygen flow and when I think about delivery of isoflurane or any gas via, uh, sorry, any inhalant via, uh, an inhalant, um, mechanism, I think it's, it's really good. And, and the way I think about this is, is the same way that I would think about a concentrated infusion of an IV drug. So if we're using lidocaine, for instance, generally we would give a an initial bolus dose, which is a little bit sort of overshooting our target analgesic level. And the reason we do that is because we know that that bolus dose is going to rapidly achieve levels, but is also going to start to redistribute. And so I would like to make the parallel, or I think it's good to make the parallel of this initial induction time as your loading dose of inhalant. Because what we'll talk about later is when it's time for maintenance dose, you actually don't need to give quite so much inhalant because most of it is just wasted because the body is, has already sort of achieved a, um, a steady state with regards to how much inhalant is present. So I think two to four liters per minute is probably reasonable. I don't, four to me seems to be a bit much for a, a 30 kilo dog. Um, I think two is, is probably good. I would say that three, I would probably dial in three personally, but that's just, you know, I think that's more personal preference than anything. So let's say that our Macy is into surgery. You know, you, you decided we are ready to move her into the OR and we've got, um, some pretty loose jaw tone. Her eye position is where we want it to be. We have no palpebral reflex according to our ECG and our end title and our respiration. We seem like we're a pretty good surgical plane of anesthesia. And so our surgeon starts surgerizing, <laughs> whatever and, surgeons and are I, doing down there. Can I uh, pause you for a second there? Sure. And and I'm really glad that you brought that up because the other thing is you can get really sort of technical and wonky about thinking about flow rates. But at the end of the day, the, what you're going to use, your endpoint for have I have I adequately loaded this patient on 
my inhalant anesthetic is going to be the patient's response, right? So jaw tone, look at the eyes, look at the palpebral. I mean, that to me is the indication of when you start to say, okay, I think I've got to the point where I've, I've got enough inhalant on board in this patient's brain where I can start thinking about changing how much gas, how much inhalant I'm delivering to the patient. And so right there, and even before you get into surgery, you have the question, how are you going to decrease the amount of inhalant that's going into the patient? And I would argue you have two choices. One choice is you can decrease the percentage on your vaporizer, which I think is a lot of times what people do. They might start a dog on, what, 2% and then drop down to 1.5% or something for, for quote-unquote maintenance. I am going to make the argument, or you know, since we're discussing this, I will make the argument you can actually leave your vaporizer exactly where it is, 3%, whatever, 2%, wherever we're starting at. And instead of decreasing your percentage delivered, you can decrease the rate at which you are delivering it to the patient. And so this is kind of the, the crux of thinking about uh, the parallel between a CRI and inhalant anesthetic. And so what I would do in that case is I would say, okay, I think we've got enough inhalant on board as our quote-unquote loading dose. Now we can shift to a maintenance protocol. And for me, that maintenance protocol would be taking our oxygen flow rates and turning them down. So now all I'm providing is I'm providing enough inhalant anesthetic to maintain the patient in that anesthetized rate or estate, sorry. So to maintain jaw tone where it is, to maintain a palpebral response where I want it, to basically make the dog or maintain the dog at a surgical plane of anesthesia. Does that make sense? Is that? That makes sense. Yeah. But I'm going to say that I'll also say that I'm a little comfortable doing that based on the fact that I work at a university setting or specialty setting. And most of the time on my monitors, I have a gas analyzer so I can see yeah. my inspired isoflurane concentration and then also my expired or end title isoflurane concentration. If we have a practice out there that maybe has a multi-parameter monitor, but they don't have the opportunity to uh, monitor or have a gas analyzer on their monitor, um, what are some options for them if they want to try this method? Or what are some tips or things that they should be looking out for if they don't have a gas analyzer? Sure. That, and, and so that's actually an excellent point, too, because you mentioned both inspired and exhaled. I try not to say expired because, you know, I work in critical care now. Firing, <laughs> but uh, the gas. And, and so another just let's start first sort of thinking that you do have a gas analyzer. One thing that you would notice in your gas analyzer once you've achieved kind of a steady state of inhalant is that generally you're inspired and you're exhaled isofluorine concentration should be almost identical because what that's telling you is that the body is not taking any more uh, isofluorine out of your alveoli than it needs anymore. So when you first start, when you're, when you're doing your loading dose, you'll notice that your inspired isofluorine will be 2%, but your exhaled isofluorine will be 0 0.2, 0 0.3, 0.4. And you can actually watch that exhaled uh, isofluorine percentage go up as you achieve kind of your your steady state but i agree with you um first there are plenty of people who um, do not have access to the gas analyzer 
Secondarily, I think it is dangerous on some level to totally hang your hat on just staring at the numbers and ignoring the patient entirely. This is especially true. for, um, you know, for folks who are working in in equine in particular, the numbers, you know, they don't always they, they don't always tell you exactly what the animal's um, overall state is. And so I think if you are a very hands on anesthetist, I don't know that you necessarily need a gas analyzer. The other thing to think of, though, is on some level, think about how much isofluorine we're actually delivering. And I think you could come to a space that is, while it's not closed circuit low flow, I think you can get to a, a space where, hey, I can turn down my delivered fresh gas flow to half a liter a minute or 0.25 liters per minute and still keep this animal asleep. Uh, because a lot of what you're doing is you're just you're looking at the animal, you're looking at the responses to surgery. Um, and so from that perspective, from 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 being hands on, I don't know that you I think a gas analyzer is very useful for learning the technique, but it it certainly by no means should prevent you from thinking about how much isofluorine you're you're delivering to your patient. All right. That makes sense. I want to touch on something that you just mentioned, though, because I was always taught in school that if we were most of our vaporizers have been calibrated to need at least 500 mls per minute of flow and when you're saying that sometimes you have an animal on maybe 250 or 300 milliliters that seems um, lower than what i've always been taught as my minimum so have i been taught wrong this entire time and uh <laughs> what should i know about the calibration of my vaporizer and low lower flows of oxygen yeah so uh, first, I guess I should I should say I sort of meant I sort of threw out those numbers in in a bit of a cavalier fashion, but I, I should say that there is a little bit of science because you you don't want to you the the goal if you're doing true closed circuit anesthesia, the the theory says that you are delivering a the amount of isofluorine the animal needs to stay asleep, but you are also delivering the amount of oxygen the animal needs to stay alive. And so there is some math behind that. Um, generally, uh, and the cool thing is actually, and we don't have to get into this, we can have an entire other podcast on <laughs> raising the weight of the animal to the three quarter power. But essentially by doing that, you can predict just about any need of the animal. Um, so in this case, 10 times the animal's weight in kilos raised to the three quarter power uh, is what would give you the amount of oxygen that animal needs to, you know, basically stay alive to, to, for, for metabolism. And so, you know, in this dog, what do we say? It's a 30 kilo dog. So hold mm -hmm. on, let me do a little math here. So 30 to the 0.75. So that's going to put us somewhere that gives me 128 milliliters per minute of oxygen that this dog needs to stay alive. I think generally, when we were doing it, when I, when I was learning during my residency, I, I think we probably said that, you know, between five and 10 mils per kilo per minute is sort of where we would target. The other nice thing is if you have a closed circuit, if you're giving too much oxygen, you can watch your rebreathing bag and your rebreathing bag is going to get progressively larger. If you're not giving enough oxygen, your rebreathing bag is going to get progressively smaller. Uh, so again, you don't necessarily need fancy stuff to do this. But if we 
you know, if we targeted, I would say for this dog, I would target at 30 kilos, maybe 150 mils per minute of oxygen flow. And that's if I was going to completely do a closed circuit. So that's if I was going to completely, you know, close my pop-off valve and just let things ride. Um, we should also mention, I guess, the only re the only way that this works is if you have a CO2 absorber. So it's got you've got to have some sort of soda lime in the circuit because otherwise the CO2 is going to remain in the circuit and will cause some gas buildup problems. Um, but as long as your soda lime is is in the circuit and functioning, you can theoretically give a very low rate of oxygen and still um, you know maintain a completely closed circuit for um, for anesthesia. But that wasn't your question. Your question is, yeah, these vaporizers are designed and they're usually when they're designed, there's a couple of things that are that are a little bit tricky in veterinary medicine. The first is that most of these vaporizers are actually calibrated with a 40% air oxygen mixture. And so right off the bat, we're already screwing things up because most of the time in veterinary medicine, we are giving 100% oxygen uh, mm -hmm. as opposed to an air oxygen mixture. Shout out to my friends in Europe who are firing up the 40% oxygen. I wish we could do it. We just don't have enough sort of flow meters to do it. I don't know why we don't do it in the States, but anyway. I was wondering the same thing, only because I my, my job before University of Pennsylvania is I actually worked in research at a children's hospital. And yeah. we ran all of our experiments on room air med or medical air. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so I got used to it. And then coming back from research into, you know, small animal, I was like, yeah, why, why do we do that? Actually? Why, why doesn't veterinary medicine utilize medical air more? Yeah. I think it's just the equipment, right? It's very easy to sell. You know, yeah. we know there's a lot of clinics that have a, you know, single vaporizer with a single flow meter. Once you start adding air into it, it definitely complicates things. Um, and also you need some alarms, so you're not delivering a hypoxic mixture if your right. oxygen runs out, but your air is still going, so on and so forth. So I, I, I think it comes down to economics, quite frankly, but, um, there are, there's some lovely work, um, done out of Italy where they've looked at, you know, how quickly lungs collapse under anesthesia if you give 100% oxygen versus 40% oxygen because you destroy your nitrogen scaffold and your alveoli. I mean, there's there's good work mm. that says that air-oxygen mixtures are are actually probably better. Okay, but, friends, you here to hear. We'll find those studies and put them in the link to the show notes. Stefano, yeah. I'm sure, I, I think I know a couple people who might want to come and talk about it on this podcast. Sure, even. That would so, be great. You, we will you. geek out on some... We will, we'll medical see. air stuff that'd be fun <laughs> uh, but um, this case in particular you know i you know i'm sure that there are people who are hearing you say close the pop off completely and and the, that makes people nervous so yep. if we didn't want to do completely the closed flow with a closed pop off and we yeah. just wanted to do a lower flow mainly maybe economic and keep our patient we, you know if we really don't need yep. to have them on two liters per minute the entire time then let's bring it down so what do you use for a calculation if you wanted to do a like lower flow well yeah and and so just going back quickly um to your first question which is how accurate are these flow meters i think below probably a hundred liters per minute you may be, and there is actually a very nice paper done by uh, Tamash Ambrisco while he was at Penn that looked at isofluorine and sevofluorine vaporizers and uh, showed that at lower doses, you do lose some accuracy, not 
to the degree that I think if you weren't looking at your patient, you would not notice if they were over or under anesthetized. But generally at the lower flows, the vaporizers are delivering less than what you've got dialed in on, on the um, dial. And so I think it is reasonable to consider, so you can do your math and say, okay, ideally we'd be giving this dog, this dog needs 150 mils per minute to live. What if we dialed in 200 or 250? That to me is a very reasonable um, uh, balance between lower, lowering your flow and also, you know, kind of getting, keeping yourself in a position where you're not going to have to worry too much about, like, you can keep your pop-off valve open and it's not going to be that much of a, of a big deal. Um, because on some level, and, and, you know, depending on who's buying your, your isoflurane, the difference between how much you're delivering at, if you're running at a liter per minute or two liters per minute versus 100 mils per minute, uh, you know, it's about a 10 times, and, and I need to give a shout out to Dr. Alan Clyde, who is uh, my idol in low flow, and, and he ran anesthesia at Penn for forever. Um, but he even did a calculation where, you know, just doing one hour of isoflurane, and it, in, in his day, he calculated a mil of isoflurane costing 62 cents. And so that one mil of isoflurane makes 200 mils of isoflurane vapor. And you know, essentially he calculated an hour at closed circuit would cost you about 62 cents and an hour at high flow would cost you about eight and a half dollars. And so he actually documented for, for pen, which obviously anesthetized a ton of animals going to low flow, I think saved them 15 or $20,000 a year, just in isoflurane and oxygen costs alone. Wow. So, you know, I think it's something to consider, but I also think that, you know, putting all of those things together, because I don't even want to start talking about the pollution. Because, you know, where is that gas going? If you're running right. at two liters a minute, you're just dumping it into the atmosphere. And these are fluorinated gases. And so not not that we're causing more problems than Exxon, but... Oh, my gosh. You know how it, they, do, they say you everything gets blamed on anesthesia? That's right. Yes. Global <laughs> everything warming. really can get blamed <laughs> on anesthesia. Global warming, that's anesthesia. That's, that's it. But, you know, so it's so it's a lot to think about. And I think doing anesthesia with care is, you know, is is important. And it's and I think being able to think about exactly what you're doing, exactly how you're delivering these drugs to the animal and the fact that we're just doing a CRI through the lungs helps everyone to put it into context and say, yeah, maybe I don't need to run it at straight two liters a minute. Maybe I just need to give enough anesthesia to keep the animal asleep. Now, I had said when we went into maintenance that I would, rather than turning the vaporizer percentage down, I would just turn the flow down because I'm delivering less vapor to the animal. Right. If, if you're going to sort of split the difference, you may need to still turn your vaporizer down a bit. And again, just kind of titrate it to the animal. But if you're still delivering you know, if you're running at 250 or even half a liter a minute, you're probably going to need to actually turn down your your vaporizer percentage to decrease the amount of vapor of vapor that you're giving to the animal. Um, again, just titrating on physical exam and, and those sorts of clinical signs. Okay, so let's say we have this spay. It's the doctor's finished up 
Um, they just put their last bit of skin glue in. You know, we, we gave our dose of carprofen and we're ready to go to recovery. And what I see a lot of people do, and maybe you can tell us, is this good? Is it bad? Is it indifferent? Is it doing what we think it's doing? Um, is that they'll, if we're ready to move into recovery, they'll disconnect the animal from the circuit and then flush through to try to get any inhalant gas out of it and then reconnect and be on oxygen for an arbitrary amount of time. I've heard anywhere from some practices doing three minutes and then some practices doing five minutes. Um, tell us, is this helping our, our patient and should we be doing it for a certain amount of time? Should we be doing it for a certain amount of flow? What's your opinion? Well, it's kind of the same thing. I mean, you're doing what we did in the beginning in reverse, right? So, so this is all based on gradients. And so as long as your, if your, if your arterial isofluorine matches your alveolar isofluorine, then you're going to be at this steady state. And, you know, the, as you either metabolize or exhale the isofluorine, more will go into the body. So by theoretically doing this flushing mechanism and, and all of a sudden delivering 100% oxygen, what you're accomplishing is you're sort of making a concentration gradient where there's less isofluorine in the lungs than there is in the rest in the bloodstream. And so theoretically, you're going to encourage uh, movement out of the body into the lungs where the where the isofluorine can be exhaled. Um, and so from that perspective, you can you can make a case for kind of doing that, especially if you have an animal who you're thinking, ah, eh, this animal is a little bit deep to, you know, make it to recovery where I feel safe, just kind of sitting him in recovery and, and waiting for him to to extubate. And so on one hand, it can kind of, I think, on some level speed up your uh exhalation of the gas. And again, it's great to be able to use your, if you have a gas analyzer, because you can actually see those, the the reverse, right? So you'll be giving in zero, um, zero percentage of gas, and you'll be seeing your exhaled gas will be higher um, because it's all working on that gradient system. Um, I should also say, I don't know if anyone is using nitrous oxide anymore, but there is also uh, from a safety perspective, if you're using nitrous oxide, we do, you know, people recommend at least sort of a 10 minute washout period where you're no longer giving the nitrous oxide to to avoid um, hypoxia. I don't know in if you're not using uh, nitrous oxide, if it's necessary to to kind of maintain that, um, you know, the the flush oxygen sort of scenario for that long. Um, but it is something, and it's the same thing too. If you increase your your rate of delivery, you're now delivering gas that's free of isofluorine, so you're encouraging isofluorine to leave the body. Um, and so I can see how that could, on some level, speed up the um, you know the awakening process. Whether or not you want to speed up the awakening process, we can have another discussion about later. But um, I'm a fan of kind of letting animals wake up on their own. But oh, okay, Very interesting. I, I mean, you know, it depends on your time, though. If you've got three more things to anesthetize, sometimes you need to move a little bit. But that That's that's what I think of it. Would I do it? Yeah, I, you know, I would surely give them some oxygen, but I don't have in my mind any particular, like for me, it would be more just kind of, again, physical exam, the animal starting to wake up, the animal starting to swallow, then we probably don't need to continue the, you know, we don't have to enforce 10 full minutes of oxygen or something like that. 
Okay. Interesting. Well, this has been so much information. I feel like uh, people might have to re-listen to this to get all of the really good tidbits um, as far as oxygen flow. But I think some really cool things to think about that maybe we don't have to have every animal on two liters uh, per minute of flow, that kind of that maintenance that we were taught as, you know, I'm sure a safety, maybe we can rethink it. And especially when we think about the physiology of the animal and if we have good monitoring and um, physical monitoring as well as the, the machines. Um, but it's been a wealth of information. So thank you so much for being a guest with us today and talking about oxygen flow, which at first sounds really dry and boring, but is actually pretty cool and interesting and can certainly impact our patient's anesthetic experience for the better and the overall hospital economic experience for the better and potentially, you know, the world environmental health for the better. We we forgot one thing. Which oh, is, what's that? Well, remember that the air coming out of the the tank or the wall is not humidified. Right. And we true all of our things to try and keep nice, warm, humidified air going into our patient. The lower your flow, the more rebreathing you have. If they're just rebreathing the isofluorine they've exhaled, that limits the amount of, uh, you know, drying out of the lung mucosa. It helps them maintain body temperature. I mean, we can go on for quite a long time about the benefits of closed circuit anesthesia. But I think, you know, for those of you who are just starting out, do it incrementally. If you're used to doing one and a half liters per minute for everything. Try it at one liter per minute and see how it goes. The one thing to keep in mind is as you get lower, your if an animal starts to wake up or an animal gets light, you're going to probably have to increase your flow rate again. You're going to have to, it's essentially, you're giving them a redose of your loading dose uh, to get them, you know, back to a good anesthetic plane and then you can kind of start again. So we didn't cover that, but you know, if they wake up, you'll probably have to turn up your flow rate again, just no, it's a really good point because I think that sometimes if the animal does start to react during surgery, especially, you know, the doctor goes to pull on that ovarian ligament and now we have our patient huffing or maybe even potentially, you know, moving a bit, um, our, go-to is usually to turn up the vaporizer, right? Especially if you've right. been riding it like 1% isoflurane, we'll crank it up to three or four. Um, but I think you make an important point is that we have to also turn up that flow. Yeah, because if you're used to running at high flow, you're used to dialing them in just with the percentage on the vaporizer. And then you're gonna have to switch your your mindset and perception to think about how much gas, how much isoflurane is going into the patient and and how you're going to achieve that so yeah that is the that's the one sort of caveat but it's a good way to practice and so you can just incrementally pop down and see how things go yeah such good information well thank you so much uh for being a guest on the podcast and like i said guys we will put links to some of those studies uh that were mentioned in our show notes dr ben brainerd thank you so much for being a guest thank you so much for everything that you're doing to make sure that our critical patients are getting great pain control and yeah well thanks so much tasha it was great to talk to you and and uh hopefully there's some tidbits of info here that people can use to improve or challenge themselves when they do anesthesia 